our imaginations for a second as we begin. Let's imagine that you live in the United States in the year 1812. Uh, you're the father of a beautiful young woman called Anne Hasseltine. And one day, a young man called Adoniram Judson comes to visit you, and he's looking a little bit nervous. And the reason why he's nervous is because he's here to ask for your daughter's hand in marriage. Now, he looks a bit nervous, but he clears his throat and he says this. I am here to ask you whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Will you consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life? Will you consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the potentially fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death? Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing souls, for the sake of the glory of God. What would you say? What would you say? Well, I dare say most of us would want to say yes. We want to say yes because we know about the plight of the lost of the eternity that awaits everyone who does not put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to say yes because we're well and truly aware of the commission of our Lord Jesus Christ to go and make disciples of all nations. We want to say yes because we know about the necessity of sacrifice in reaching the world for Christ. And we want to say yes because fundamentally we have a healthy theology of the resurrection. We want to say yes for all those reasons, but I wonder how many of us in our heart of hearts would say no. Or at least find some polite excuse to cover up our no. Well, why would that be? Well, I think there are two main reasons. One would be that we love comfort more than we should. We made it our ambition to plump up the pillows of our own existence. So anything that threatens that is a threat. Secondly, we want to avoid risk. We avoid risk more than we should. We make it our goal to pursue a risk-free and predictable life. So we, so we want to free ourselves from the emotional pain of separation from our daughter in this instance. Or act to protect her, so we think, saying, if you think I'm going to let you take my daughter away from me so that you can put her life at risk every single day, you're in dream world, Mr. Judson. Well, one man would have said yes to Judson. And they would have been him the Apostle Paul. And in Acts 21, 1 to 16, Luke records a true story from his life, which tells us that it wasn't his ambition to pursue his own comfort. It was his ambition to glorify Jesus in everything, for to him to live as Christ. And it wasn't Paul's desire to avoid risk I mean, to him, you put everything on the line for Jesus to the point that in some circumstances, even death is no deterrent. Indeed, to Paul, to die is gain. And to live is Christ and to die is gain are familiar words from Philippians 1 and 2. 
that provide really a helpful structure to our time in this text. The first point being in verses 1 to 6, to live is Christ. What does the text say? Well, in verses 1 to 6, we find that Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. Verses 1 to 6 really act like something of a travel itinerary. Paul's been on Expedia and plotted the course of this eastern Mediterranean cruise with Jerusalem as his intended destination. Luke had already told us that in Acts 19.22. But this is no recreational trip. He's got business to attend to. He has been gathering a collection around some of the European churches to take back to the struggling churches in Jerusalem. And it's not a risk-free trip either. You know that just as you read on, in fact, you can read back and see what Paul's life has been like typically. And there have been hardships for him every stage of the journey of his missionary journeys. And just as the Home Office warns UK travelers about the risks of traveling to certain countries, we find in this passage that Paul is warned about taking this trip as well not by a government agency, but actually by the Holy Spirit. Look with me, verses 20, uh, at chapter 20, over the page in verses 22 to 23. It says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. So Paul is in no doubt what lies ahead. Now, the Home Office tries to help you escape from countries where safety might not be guaranteed and where risk to life is high. But here's where we find the Holy Spirit compelling Paul to go to Jerusalem and to go despite the threat of hardships and persecution and prison. And again, the question that we might ask ourselves is, what would we do in that situation? I don't know about you, but if I was in that situation, I'd be inclined to ask a few more questions for clarity's sake. What kind of hardships are we talking about here? What kind of hardships? Are we talking about going without food for a day or two, or are we actually talking about lashings? What What are we talking about here? And the question that I suppose many of us would wonder about it would be, will we actually die? I said in the introduction that we're risk-averse. At the prospect of danger, we're the kind of people who don't just stop. We're the kind of people who retreat and step back. But here we find Paul is willing in this passage to take the risk and step forward. And amazingly, he still boards that ship. And that's amazing. The question we can ask at this stage then is, what is it that makes the Apostle Paul live like that? Well, you could argue from the whole book of Acts that in Paul's experience, nowhere is safe. The cities weren't safe. The roads weren't safe. The Jews weren't safe. The Gentiles weren't safe. A safe, risk-free environment for the Apostle Paul, indeed for the gospel missionary, was a mirage. But Philippians 1, 20 to 21 gives us greater insight into the reason why Paul would board that ship. Paul writes these words from Rome, where he is in prison, and written after the events of Acts 21. He says this, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Those words tell us so much about Paul's mindset and Paul's heart. 
It tells us that Paul's ambition was not to plump up the pillow of his own existence. It was, his ambition was to live for Jesus, to exalt, magnify, and make much of him in obedience to his commands as much as he could. That was his aim. He said something similar over the page in Acts 20, 24. He said, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task. The Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now, that's what motivates Paul to get on that ship. That's why he's willing to take the risk to go to Jerusalem. Now, the question is, how does this apply to us? How does this apply to us in our day and age? Well, first of all, we need to die to self. Every single culture and every day in our own culture, there is an attempt really for us to be discipled, if you like, into our culture's view of what life is all about. Think of what people in our culture would do with Philippians 1.21. How would our culture change that to reflect its own values? Well, we say to live is Christ, to die is gain. What would they say? To live is family, to grow, to see our family grow is gain. Uh, to live is comfort for that little bit of luxury. Oh, that's gain. But it's not true. Of course, it's not just our culture that tries to shape us into its own form. Our flesh does the same and attempts us in our, the sinfulness of our own internal desires. We're tempted to be discipled and changed into the kind of things that would just help us be more comfortable, more risk-averse, self-protected, some might say into futility in gospel ministry. How tragic. We will never consider becoming what a weekend like this encourages us all to become if that's our mindset. We are all missionaries, right? We all understand that. Whatever we are, in whatever circumstance or place that we find ourselves to be in, you do not need to have the designation or be found in CBC online to be a missionary. We are all who believe in Jesus Christ sent by him. But there are some that are set apart, set apart to go and do particular works. And it is our hope and prayer regularly that people as a result of weekends like this, will commit their lives to doing so. Now, I don't know what it might be for you. Maybe it is a short-term mission trip. Maybe it's a long-term mission. Maybe it's surrendering your career or using your whole career in a context different from the one you planned. Maybe it's becoming a missionary doctor. Maybe it's Bible translation. Maybe for you, it's a ministry apprenticeship. Maybe it's a pursuit of pastoral ministry or gospel work in some form and paid gospel ministry. Maybe it's being a part of a church plant. 
I want us to see in this from the Apostle Paul and his example to us is that to live for anything less than Christ overall is nothing. Gospel ambition will be conditioned by worldly things unless we, like Paul, count everything as rubbish and say to live as Christ. That will, that's what makes him do what he does. But that's not all he says, of course. In verses 7 to 16, this is point two, he expresses explicitly that he's willing to lay down his life for the sake of the gospel, for to Paul, to die is gain. In verses 7 to 11, what we see is that the Holy Spirit again warns Paul about what awaits him in Jerusalem. Having traveled from Tyre, he and his companions sailed on there, hugging the coast of Syria, sailing a day at a time until they reached Caesarea. And when you look at verse 10, it says, while they were there, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Now, we've met Agabus before in Acts. In Acts 11, he predicted a famine in Jerusalem, and it came about. And here, what he does is he, he doesn't just verbalize the prophecy. He doesn't just tell it. He acts it out, which is quite common to see when you read the Old Testament. Uh, prophets often dramatized their message and communicated it, um, putting the words and the warnings into pictures. And that's what Agabus is doing here. Paul's going to be bound... And that means a trial, and most likely that means execution. And this is why we see what we see in verse 12. Paul's friends plead with him not to go. When they hear this, they, they, they do what the Tyrenians did in verse 4. They pled, were pleading with Paul not to go. And you might have done the same. If someone you love was walking into certain imprisonment and persecution with a high risk of death, you'd probably try to dissuade them. Maybe you'd come up with alternative suggestions as well. Oh, imagine what, you could, what could be done if you ventured further into Europe, you know, or go north, or what about Africa? Start offering some alternative destinations. But what would Paul do? I mean, this is one of the most explicit statements of what's going to happen to Paul in Jerusalem. Everybody, even Luke, says, don't go. He's saying, we were pleading with him not to go. But in verses 13, 13 to 14, we have Paul's incredible response. He says, first of all, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? It's just obvious from that that he's upset by their pleas. As if to say, please don't weaken my resolve with your emotional pleading. It's hard to leave behind the things I've left behind. It's hard to do the things that I've got to go and do. But don't weaken my resolve. Don't weep and break my heart. I'm doing the right thing. I think that's an incredible insight. I mean, sometimes we assume that the Apostle Paul has some superhuman strength. But that's when we kind of forget what's written most commonly in his letters, that he tells you very openly just how weak he is. And we think, oh, Paul, it's just, it's just being humble. <laughs> you know, but he really is. He really is. But when he tells you he's weak, he tells you he gives him strength. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. 
he says, I'm ready. Now that's not, come on death, come on Satan, come on Jews, take your best shot. He's not some crazed kamikaze on some suicide mission. This is a calm resignation, really, that if this should end in death, he's ready to face it. And no one could deter him from it. It's very different from what those who would call themselves Islamists practice and talk about when they refer to martyrdom. It's very, very different. So what is it that makes a Christian walk into, on into trouble and hardship? What is it that makes a Christian want to give up their job, change their career, do something completely different, give you know, drop down 50,000 pounds in their salary to do a different work somewhere overseas, somewhere obscure. What is it that makes someone want to say, I really want to serve the Lord God and reaching a group of people that's not yet been reached Actually, knowing that by doing so, I'm going to be putting my life in danger, knowing that the risks are quite significant. What is it for us? What is it for our mission partners? What was it for the Apostle Paul? Well, I think John Piper explains it in a sentence. He says, It's the belief that God himself is better than what life can give to you now and better than what life can take from you later. It's the belief that God himself is better than what life can give to you now, and better than what death can take from you later. We allow the influence of our world to turn a statement like that on its head, and the gospel suffers. People don't go and make disciples. People don't open up and engage people with God's word, offering a courageous and honest testimony of the gospel. People fear death. But what Piper has just said is just another way of saying to live as Christ, to die as gain. In the here and now, God is, God is gracious to give us the joy of being employed and reaping this harvest of righteousness in bringing lost souls into the fold. And there's nothing in this life that is more valuable than doing the will of God in that regard and living with eternity in view. And as for death, well, death is gain because of what it brings to the Christian. I mean, the Christian longs to depart this world and be with Christ, to no longer struggle with suffering, to no longer struggle with sin, to never feel pain or shame is a thrilling prospect. And that's the kind of thing that makes us pray, come Lord Jesus. But of course, seeing our Savior and meeting the Lord our God is the most wonderful prize of all that death serves up. To be in his presence is everything. Now, to those who don't believe the gospel, who have never looked to the cross and thought, wow, I really am a sinner. 
and I really needed him to die so that I could have that forgiveness. To people who are not Christians, death is very different. Death, in fact, inspires terror in lots of people. Uh, John Stott, in his commentary on Acts, writes about uh, Ronald Dworkin, an American legal philosopher, who once wrote, Death's central horror is oblivion. The terrifying absolute of the absence of light. Death has dominion not because it is the start of something, but because it's the end of everything. That's what death without Christ looks like. It's terrifying. But death holds no horrors for Christians. For Paul, for us, though the process is always messy, but Christ has destroyed death and is himself the first fruits of our resurrection. Because when we see that he's been raised, we find the assurance that we too will be raised, and that's what makes the difference. And that's what makes us ready, ready to be missionaries, ready to become ministry apprentices, ready to become pastors, gospel workers, ready to plant churches, ready to raise up our voice and speak to the people that we meet all the time. The kind of people that when we look at them, we don't really say it out loud, but we've got this quiet gurgling unrest in us where we think, I really should have told you by now what my life is all about. I really should have, if I really loved you, if I really should have told you by now the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ready to tell people. We ought to be ready. Passage like this gives us lots to think about and helps us to be ready. Ready to be missionaries, ready to go to unreached people groups, ready to start works where work have, has not been started before. Ready to respond graciously to ill treatment or rejection or slander. Ready for anything. If it means that people out there in this city and in this world will hear about Jesus. In Acts 20, 24, we read, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Paul sees his life as less important than the ministry that God has given him to make disciples. The question is, is it worth it? Is it worth it? Well, that's a question I wish I could ask Mr. Hasseltine. At the beginning of the sermon, I told you how Judson asked Mr. Hasseltine for his daughter's hand in marriage, but I didn't tell you what he said. But with tears streaming down his cheeks and his heart broken, he said yes. He sent his daughter off with Judson to live the missionary life. Was it worth it? Well, the Judsons could have said something like the Apostle Paul. I mean, it wasn't easy for the newly married Judsons. They experienced many heartaches. They faced rejection by British missionary groups. They were forced to move from India to Burma. That wasn't part of the plan. 
when they arrived there, they shared the Lord's Supper together, just the two of them, because there were no other Christians there to invite to the table. Within months of moving, they lost nearly every penny of support. It took seven years of language work before Judson even felt he could share the gospel in Burmese. And even then, the message was met with indifference. After 12 years of hard work, they, had, they only saw 18 conversions. Two of his three children died before they reached the age of two. He spent two years in prison because he was suspected of being a foreign spy. And only a few months after his release from prison, his wife, Anne, died. She never did see much fruit. But was it worth it? Well, the only way to answer that question really is to measure the difference that their sacrifice made in eternity. When they began their mission in Burma, they set a goal of translating the Bible and planting a church of 100 members before they died. But when Judson died, he left the legacy of a Bible in Burmese and an English Burmese dictionary, 100 churches, and over 8,000 believers. Yes, it was worth it. Leaving family, missionary, unrest, ill health, the indifference of the people they were trying to reach at first, two years in prison, terrible bereavement, and thousands of people on the right side of judgment and eternity, yes, it was worth it. It was hard, but it was worth it. Because living for Christ and making sacrifices like these, it's all worth it. Judson himself died on a boat halfway between Burma and the United States. He never did make it home. Before he died, it's recorded that he cried out in concern for the lost in the world, and he cried out which something that is, in my view, a challenge to all Christians everywhere. He cried out this, how few there are who die so hard. How few there are who die so hard. In other words, how few there are who say to live as Christ and to die as gain. Well, we have a choice to make, to go along with the spirit of this age and choose to live seeking worldly pleasures, acquiring worldly possessions, pursuing worldly ambitions, or we can decide that actually we can put those kind of things that God has given us to use we either, in a sense, surrender them and go and make disciples, or else we do all that we can to make sure that we are sending tons of people to do the work. God has called us to a much greater purpose than just the things that this world offers us. We don't need to worry about comfort. We don't need to be averse to risk. My prayer is that we would take these next few moments in the quietness to consider what it might mean for us to say to live as Christ, to die as gain. What kind of challenge does a passage like this bring to us and say to us? Maybe it is about, as I've said, reaching out to family members or friends round about us. Maybe it's about a short-term mission, a long-term mission, a ministry apprenticeship, theological studies, be anything, whatever it is, 
to live as Christ, to die as gain. Let's bow our heads and let's take 60 seconds in the quietness just to pray our own prayers.